0: Good morning. How are you this morning? Man, you're looking good. I got to tell you that I must be in the wrong place. This is a good looking church. I turned right when I should have turned left somewhere. Well, you can see, uh, walking around with my cane. I've kind of been through the ringer lately. Um, most of you know, you were praying for me. I spent a couple of weeks in the hospital or a couple, you know, a week there and a week home recovering and my second day back at work or something like that. I, uh, Tore the meniscus in my right knee Friday. And so I'm kind of hobbling around today. So I'm probably going to sit right here. I feel, this is the problem with preaching from the stools. I feel like I've lost my swag. I kind of had to hobble up here. And and I know that those of you who've known me for a couple of years are saying to yourself right now, you didn't have any swag, Wayne. Right? But I want you know there was a time in my life where I felt like I had some swag. In fact, uh, there's a, huh? How about that guy right there with that 57 Chevy? That was me. That was probably the last time in my life I felt like I had swag, to be honest with you. And even then, I really didn't have it, but I felt like I had it. What about that hair? Huh? I got to tell you, it was fun. This is actually from my high school annual. Um, you know you want to be voted, like, most likely to succeed. You want to be voted best personality. Um, I got voted nicest car. It had nothing to do with me. <laughs> my dad built it. It was my dad had swag. I didn't have that. I got to tell you a funny story. One time, most of you know, Sydney and I started dating when we were 14. We dated kind of off and on. And in the early years, it was far more off than on. And at one point, I was trying to impress another young lady. And we were in this car. And there was a guy that went to my high school. It was a year older than me. And he had this sharp blue old Nova. He called it Sweet Madam Blue. And he wanted to race me every chance he got. And I never raced him. One of the things about my car is I knew it was powerful. I knew my dad had. I didn't know anything about mechanics. I still don't. I can't push a tack in a wall. I can't pound a nail. I don't know anything about all that kind of man stuff. But I had this cool car that I knew if I wanted it to, I could really go fast. But I just thought the cool thing was to always just know, right? To cruise slow and know. So I never raced him. And then he started bullying me. In fact, one time uh, I got in the car after a late night recording studio session, was taking some friends home about 1 in the morning. And uh, the tires on the right side of the car fell off. And I literally went into a ditch at about 30 miles an hour. The next day, I got a note in the mailbox from this guy saying, unless we race, these things are going to keep happening. So he was really bullying me. So one night, I'm trying to impress this girl. We're side by side in the car, big bench seat, you know, those little feet. It's like the, the big sofa you have in your house now. It's kind of like the seat in that car. And we're cruising down the road, and this guy pulls up next to me. Every time I'd see him around town, I'd try to avoid him. And he'd come up next to me, and he was just raring to go. Man, we're at a light. He's doing the whole rev thing. So I'm thinking, this is it. I'm finally going to have to put all the bullying to an end. I'm going to have to beat him, and I get to impress the girl. Because I I haven't really raced this car, but I know what my dad did to it. And I know that if I put the hammer down, I am gone, baby. I know that if I connect to the source, I have got everything I need to bear fruit in this car. (laughs) So I started revving that bad boy up. And I put that thing in first and that light hit and I pulled my foot off the clutch and the bench seat came loose and it flew backwards and I popped the clutch and my car jumped about 10 feet and then the bench seat flew forward and both my feet hit the clutch and gas at the same time. And it popped at another ten feet. So while he's cruising down the road 100 miles an hour, this girl next to me is breaking her neck because the bench seat's going back and forth and just snapping, and my car's hopping like five feet at a time. It was the worst, most humbling experience of my life. No, I did not get a second date. No, I did not get a second chance to race him. And that was the moment that I lost my swag for good. So I just want you to know that I had swag at one time. It's not today. And it wasn't last year, but I had swag at one time. And the tough part about all this is I tend to be a guy who likes to move around, you know, walk side to side. Those of you who remember me preaching before, I kind of move up the aisle and move my hands, and I'm feeling a little restricted this morning, and that's okay. Well, I am believing the Lord has a word for us, and if I can just get out of the way anyway, right, not try to be cool and have swag, that his word will come through and he'll still speak to us. So I'm going to push forward this morning. Is that okay? I'm going to push forward probably just like you're looking at me, sitting right here. And you're going to come with me? Is that good? In fact, how about this? How about not only will you listen with ears of faith this morning and a heart of faith, how about you have eyes of faith? And while I'm speaking, you just imagine that I'm walking side by side. You imagine I'm up the aisle. You can imagine, in fact, since we're going there in the spirit, you can imagine that I'm funny. You can imagine that I'm a little better looking, maybe a little taller and more proportionate. Huh? I mean, you can just just go. I'll go there in faith if you'll go there in faith with me this morning. okay? you know, today we're going to continue our series in James, a faith to live by. This is part five in our series, and we're going to give our faith a little bit of an autopsy this morning or James is going to. Um, I don't know how you guys have been feeling during this series. I've been feeling slightly slapped around. James doesn't seem to pull any punches, does he? Man, this guy speaks it straight. Um, In part one of our series, uh, Pastor Dan talked to us about how James tells us to consider it pure joy when we face trials and temptations. And Pastor Dan spoke very clearly about the Christian life being a life of perseverance. You know, Jimmy's not the only one who's not been pulling any punches lately. Pastor Dan's been bringing us a word that's been good and challenging. In part two of the series, Pete Wilmot helped us to see that James is clear that a life of faith in God is a game changer. Right? He talked about that everything changes, everything changes when we accept God's promise. Everything changes when we stop assigning blame. Everything changes when we accept responsibility and consequences. Because a life with God is a game changer. In parts three and four in the series, Pastor Dan continued by sharing the book of James and how our faith. Should be a transforming faith. It was an encouraging word about being in right standing with God and how we should absolutely be reflecting a life transformed if we are truly Christians and in the Word. They walked us through moral instruction, warnings about things like moral filth and anger and favoritism and more. And again, Jimmy was pulling no punches in these scriptures. And today is part five. And i got to tell you that James is at it again. Okay? So would you open your Bibles with me or you can follow along on the screen. We're going to read James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace and be warmed and filled. But you do not give them the things that are needed for the body. What does that profit? Thus also by faith itself, it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, well you do well. But you know, even the demons believe and tremble. Then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Thus saith the Lord. Will you pray with me this morning? God, I am thankful for the book of James and its instructions. Lord, I'm thankful that That there's straight talk here. Lord, would you come this morning? Would you help us to, with eyes of faith, do some self-examination this morning? Would you help us to be willing to be real and authentic? God, would your presence be so thick in this place that it's a safe place to open up? That it's a safe place to examine? That it's a safe place for us to lay aside a mask? To lay aside a falsehood, to lay aside a truth, to lay aside anything between what we believe and what your word says to us this morning. Help us be real. Thank you for your presence. Amen. James is a straight talker, huh? How do they say it these days? What do you guys say? Real talk. They I say it's real talk? Say, you know, I got to go to my youth pastor for you know the news. It's real talk. This is some real talk right here. It's a hashtag real talk. Okay? See, I got a little swag left in me, baby. Let's just But there's something here that's also a little concerning at glance. At a glance if we don't carefully examine it. Okay? So let's do that. In fact, in verse 14 it says this, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, does not have works? Can faith save him? See, my concern is that if all you do is glance by these Scriptures, you'll believe that James is alluding that we are saved by our works. But we know and we believe here that Scripture is clear that we are saved by faith. In fact, your faith isn't even your faith. It's a gift from God to you. Right? In fact, in verse 14, a more concise translation would probably be something closer to this in the Greek. If someone claims faith but does not work it out, can that kind of faith save him? That's probably a more accurate translation of that verse. But we don't even have to go there because the Apostle Paul throughout Scripture, remember precept upon precept, right? When we want to know what one Scripture means, we can look at the rest of Scriptures, the rest of truth, the rest of things the Lord has led us to. So let's look at what Apostle Paul tells us. First of all, in his book to the Romans, Romans 3.28, He says, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by what? By faith, apart from the deeds of the law. And again, in his book to the Galatians, Paul writes in Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And again, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love... Is that some good news? Because of his great love with which he has loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus... For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not even of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works. In fact, would you repeat this with me? For by grace you have been saved through faith. Again, for by grace we have been saved through faith. I need you to understand that this morning. Okay? It is all about Jesus. It is not about us. It is all about Jesus. It is His grace alone and the faith that was a gift from Him to us that we might have faith in Him. That connection, our belief and faith in Christ, is our source of life. So, the question then becomes are Paul and James at odds? Do they disagree? If they were together in the room right now, would we need an octagon to contain the (laughs) throwdown? Okay? And the truth is I don't believe so. No. In fact, I think they're talking about two sides of the very same coin. Let's remember what we've learned about James first in these first four weeks. First of all, James' message has been to brothers and sisters in Christ. His message has been to Christians about how they are living their lives. He has been consistent that it's been about the walking out of our salvation, the living out of our faith. It's not been the message to those who are seeking a first time salvation in Christ or who are lost, but to those who have found it and are walking out their service. That's why we've called the series of faith to live by. Secondly, James has been very consistent in his message about this life of faith. His primary concern, again, has been how we are walking out our salvation. All we have to do is let James look at James, look at James, look at James, James, because he has been consistent throughout. The point is this, and you're going to want to write this down. By the way, note takers are history makers, so make sure you write this down. Paul is talking about a no-so faith. James is talking about a show-so faith. Paul is talking about the roots of our salvation. James is talking about the fruit of our salvation. Paul is talking about the provision of our faith. And James wants to see the proof of our faith. They are both talking about two different sides of the same coin let's say that we were talking about an apple tree an apple tree finds its life in one place and one place only kent my master gardener i'm hoping i get an amen from you somewhere along the line here because i'm not a gardener i don't do that man stuff it finds its roots in one place or its life in one place and one place only and that is in its roots An apple tree cannot gain all the nutrients it needs to survive through its branches. An apple tree cannot gain everything it needs to sustain life through its leaves, through its bark, or through its fruit. The single source of life for any apple tree is in its roots. Now, all those other things are important to the life of the apple tree. But the single source of life for the apple tree is in its roots. Now, imagine if you would that we could dig out under a tree. And we could cut out all the roots leave the tree standing. We could pick the fruit and bury it under where the roots were so that the apple tree could live off the fruit. Wouldn't happen. There's no life there all of a sudden. That tree dies. Now, if you lived in a world where people's greatest needs were apples, their absolute deepest need were apples, And you had an apple tree that claimed to have strong, healthy roots. But it bore no fruit. It had no apples. Would you say that that tree was alive and doing what it was meant to do in that community? No. And that's what James is talking about. He is saying, I know that you are saved through your roots but bring me your apples, because if you don't bring me no apples, I can't trust that there are roots there. I don't believe that to be true. And I want to tell you this this morning. We have what our world most desperately needs. We absolutely have what our world, what your neighbors, what this community, what your workmates, your co-workers, your teammates, your schoolmates, what they absolutely most desperately need. So we need to examine ourselves and say, are we a source of life to them? The roots are our link to life and our salvation. The fruit is our link to their lives and our walking out of our salvation. So now that we're clear about what James is talking about, and it's very important to me that we are, I want to get real about these verses because, as we've said, Jimmy ain't pulling no punches. Let's do an autopsy, if you will, with me, a close examination on our own faith. There's three things that we can quickly determine that these verses help us to. One is this. Is your faith profitable? First of the three things, is your faith profitable? Profitable. Verse 14 says, What does it profit, my brother, and if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? Or what we learned earlier, can that kind of faith save? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, but be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what does that profit? So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is not are we going to church regularly? It's not do we claim to love the Lord or did we have an experience at some point that was personable in our faith with Jesus. The question is, are the people that we're around every day profiting? Is our faith profitable? Are needs met? Felt needs, physical needs, real needs. Do we make a difference in the world or in somebody's world? Is our faith profitable? Secondly, we have to examine during our autopsy and ask ourselves is our belief a barren belief? In verse 18 it says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Right? We can say that we have belief. We can fill these seats week in and week out. But if we're an apple tree without apples, we're barren. We're barren. You can look at your trunk and say, look how big and strong it is. Right? I can pull up in that yellow 57 Chevy and everybody in the world sees a car that looks cool and fast and has a reputation. But if I can't even go through the stoplight, it's barren. It's barren. It doesn't mean a thing. And the problem is, if we start living out a faith that is not profitable, and becomes barren, the third thing is this. We are potentially fatal. Our faith is potentially fatal. Verse 20 says, But do you want to know, O foolish man, That faith without works is dead. I believe that we all get into these seasons for one reason or another. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Where we can go through a barren season, an unprofitable season. The key is, how do we catch it before it becomes fatal? You know, James gives us two examples And an illustration, and I want to quickly look at them. The first example is this. In verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Notice that James says this. The Scripture was fulfilled. And then he goes on to quote a Scripture about Abraham's faith, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, I want to ask you, when was it accounted to him for righteousness? When it, Was it when he offered up Isaac, his son? Was it the minute that there were works in his life that it was accounted to him for righteousness? No. In fact, the Scripture that James is quoting is from some 30 years earlier. It's found in the book of Genesis 15, 6, and it says, And Abraham believed in the Lord, and the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. So when James quotes this scripture, what he's saying is, he's reminding us that Abraham was a man of faith. And later, that scripture was fulfilled because he acted upon it. He's saying there was provision for Abraham's faith, and then here was proof of Abraham's faith. The second example was about Rahab. In fact, in verse twenty five it says, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she refused when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. This is this is a fantastic story. I wish wish I could just preach a whole message on this one story. But let's just quickly summarize it. It's from the second chapter of Joshua, and though we don't have complete time to delve into it, the bottom line is we're talking about a prostitute who by the way has wisely set up her home and her shop in the city wall near the city gate, where she has access to every man entering and exiting the city. But after hearing the miracles of the Lord at the Red Sea and how he delivered his people from the king of the Amorites, Joshua 2.11 says this. I love this scripture. That her heart melted. That her heart melted. The heart of a prostitute. The cold heart of hurt and rejection, and need for love. You can imagine all the things that goes on in that heart. And it says that upon hearing these things of the Lord, her heart melted and she declared the Lord to be God of heaven and God of earth. And immediately her response in this newfound faith was to act upon it. She goes from hiding men who are her customers in her home for her survival... To hiding the men that Moses sent, the spies Moses sent, in her home for their survival. And in the end, because of her act, God spares her entire family and everybody she could fit in her home. Because her heart melted and she declared, Lord God of heaven and earth. These are the two examples of faith and action that James gives us. And lastly, he leaves us with an illustration in verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And that brings us to this tough word. It brings us back to the self-autopsy and the three things we talked about. Do we find our faith these days? Right now. I don't mean at some point. I mean right now in your life. Do we find our faith profitable? Do we find it a barren belief? And are we on the road to it being potentially fatal? You see, understanding clearly what Paul and James are speaking about is one thing, but it's not enough. It's not enough to understand the both sides of this coin. We have to realize that James brings this word specifically to brothers and sisters in Christ. Specifically to me. Specifically to you. Because we all get to places and times when our faith is not profitable. It becomes barren. We go through these seasons. And James' hope as his mind is that we can see it and recognize it before it becomes Fatal. You know, we often talk about it here at LifeSpring that one of our models is really this. Life is hard and then it gets harder. Oh, man, isn't that the truth? I know what some of you are going through. You know what I've been through. Life is hard and it gets harder. And I know that most of us, like Rahab, at some point we had a glimpse of God that melted our heart. And that's why we're here. And that's why we try to keep living this life with perseverance. That's why we keep moving forward. It inspired us to declare our faith. But the thing is that things happen in life because it's hard and it gets harder. And sometimes we just get stuck. We just get stuck. It's not that we've stopped loving the Lord. We just get stuck. We live in a world that needs apples and too often for too many seasons that last far too long. We're trees without fruit. We get stuck. We get offended by somebody. And all of a sudden we're looking inward and we're stuck. And we go weeks and months. And we still love the Lord and we still pray and we come two or three Sundays. But we're not serving. We're not worried about Mrs. Anderson down the street or my co worker. We're not living out the fruit. Jesus loves this community. He loves His people And the people, we have a source to what everybody needs, and that is Jesus. But we get stuck. We get offended by the pastor. And we get stuck. You would be amazed at the emails and the phone calls that sometimes our pastors get. It's amazing to me that they even continue serving the Lord sometimes. We get so stuck and we take it out on them and we take it out on our family. We get offended by the church or someone else in the church because they're stuck and we've come across them and all of a sudden we've rubbed against them and it felt raw and it wasn't a good experience and now we're stuck because we're offended and we're wallowing in that offense. We get demoted, we lose a job, and we get stuck, we lose a home. And we get stuck. We can't see past the fog anymore. We get entangled in our own sin. And we get so caught up in it that we can't even see past ourselves to bear fruit for people around us. And we're not profitable. And you know that happens. That's life. But the problem is when we stay there, we become barren. And then the problem is when we stay there, we're potentially fatal and we're stuck. We lose a parent or a loved one. We deal with health issues. We get caught up in sin again. We get stuck. Sometimes we get stuck in the rut of doing things that are good. But we're so busy just doing that we've got our eyes in our rut and not on the world that needs our fruit. And we're stuck. Most of you know this, but I want to share with you again. Cindy and I have been married twenty, almost 24 years, minus a few. About seven years ago now, or eight years ago now, we lost our way. And relationships are complex. And I could tell you a hundred reasons why we got there, for me. And I'm still learning some of the reasons, quite frankly, why we got there. But I can tell you this, at the same time, we were both. Stuck. And when you're in a relationship and both of you are stuck, it is hard to see your way out. And we didn't. And we divorced. And through so many prayers and the goodness of the Lord Himself, and only because of God, we found our way back together. But I have to tell you that I was stuck. I spent a year, I had been a pastor. I've been following the Lord since I first met him when I was 14 years old. Absolutely in love with the Lord. Spent time serving him, traveling overseas, recording albums, doing ministry. And all of a sudden I found myself stuck. First of all, I didn't even, I cut off the source. I didn't love the Lord. I was confused. I was hurt. I was rejected. I cursed his name. And then one morning, in the middle of my floor, in the living room, by myself, I had fallen asleep, just weeping and cursing God's name. And I woke up and I realized, you know, you keep claiming to not believe in the Lord anymore. But even when you come to the point of needing to shout at somebody, he's the one you're mad at. So you must still have something. And I just asked the Lord to, to help me. And I called my best friend, my brother Darren. And I told him I was tired of wallowing where I was, but I didn't know how to get out. So he came and picked me up. We went to his house, and we laid on his floor before the Lord. And we just prayed. Prayed. It felt so good to be real with somebody. I had continued going to church that whole time. But I was stuck. And you know what's funny is when you're stuck, the last thing you want to do is talk to somebody about it. Right? I mean, the first thing you need is help out. And the last thing you want to do is reach out and get help out. Now, that's a big thing. Right? A divorce is a huge thing. and A lot of you know what it's like, and you've been stuck. But it happens in small things in small ways, too. Every day for us, we get stuck. I'm so thankful that the Lord met me and helped me out of that place. Not because my life needed life again, which it did. But the lives around me needed God in me, the hope of glory. Right? And I'm so thankful that the Lord met my wife. And took her out of that place. And we're still walking out of that place, this journey of a fruitful faith. I know a couple who, about seven years ago, lost a child. I've known them since I was in college. Beautiful Christian family. And I want you to know that to this day, they still claim to love the Lord. And I know they do. They work for a Christian organization, they go to church every Sunday. But they are stuck. Seven years ago, they chose not to have any more children. About once a year, they put together these dinners where their family comes together, and they say, "We're going to this year. We're celebrating. She would have graduated from uh, primary school into junior high. So we're going to have." It's like they just kind of they can't stop memorializing, and they're stuck. If you met them, you'd think they're the nicest folks in the world, the greatest smile, And I love them. I'm not judging them. I don't know how I'd handle that situation. Don't get me wrong. But I know this. I have been in relationship with them since before they knew each other. And I know right now that for the last seven years, every relationship they have, including the one with me, is one inch deep. Because they're stuck. We all know people who've been stuck. We've been stuck in certain seasons in our life. And it might not be the big things like I'm talking about. Maybe for you it's just been work is hard. And you come home every night and barely have the energy to have dinner and go to bed. And that happens in one week. And then it happens two weeks. Pretty soon it's three and four months in a row. Pretty soon your eyes are only on yourself and your work. And the people around you who need Christ are not getting it from you because you're stuck. I've also been amazed and inspired by people who have, in my mind, every right to be stuck. And somehow, some way, their connection with the Lord and their faith has walked them through that. I remember standing up here with Pastor Dan and the rest of the worship team when Casey Capp's son passed away. And we were singing. You give and take away, you give and take away, but blessed be your name. And Casey stood with his hands in the air. And his ex-wife, the woman who had rejected him, stood up and put her arms around him and just held on for dear life like she would crumble if he wasn't there. And his daughter, who had just lost her brother, stood up and they worshipped the Lord and Casey's service to us every week, week in and week out has never been stronger. He could have been stuck. I know another couple who lost a child not long ago, about six or seven years ago. Great, great family. One of my favorite couples in the whole world. I met Karina when she was still a senior in high school in Spokane watched her faith blossom, watched her take a massive uh, impact on her school. Oh, man, she was a tough chick from the tough school in Spokane, and she was awesome. She, she beat people till they came to the Lord. <laughs> and uh, later on, uh, as the Lord would have it, we both ended up over here, and we'd meet Tim Han. I met Tim when he was just a couple years out of high school, a young man going through a discipleship program. And lo and behold, Tim and Karina would meet and fall in love and marry. And um, it's been fun to be their friends as they've grown up in the Lord. And they're two of my absolute favorite people in this world, absolutely class acts. And, in fact, there's a little video that I want to show that um, talks about their experience and some of what they've been through.
1: When she was born, it was uh, just a typical birth. We had two beautiful, healthy children and, and Jamie came along and uh, really seemed no
2: different. But shortly thereafter, it became clear that Jamie was different. Jamie had been born with a rare congenital heart defect known as corrected transposition of the great vessels.
1: Her heart was basically inverted. Um, so the left side of her heart was on the right side and the right was on the left she was not quite a year old yet when she had her first surgery, which was a relatively moderate in seriousness, you know, as far as a heart surgery, uh, called a PA banding. And she came out of it well, but after the surgery, to come out of uh, the operating room and lie in the uh, cardiac intensive care unit at Seattle Children's and to see her lying there uh, sedated and having um, all these tubes and wires and monitors and medications hooked up you quickly realize that uh, life has changed drastically from having two healthy kids to now being in this world of um, congenital heart defects.
2: Jamie recovered quickly from her first surgery and with that victory, the Hannahs prepared for Jamie's second open heart surgery called the double switch. After weeks of preparation, the team of surgeons performed Jamie's double switch operation and it appeared by all accounts successful.
1: For us, we figured, man, this big journey was somewhat over.
0: I remember taking a big breath, thinking, okay, worst is behind us.
1: But, you know, you can never be sure about, you know, how things are going to turn out long term when you're doing such major operations on little tiny hearts. And unfortunately, she had some some bad side effects from it that then weakened her heart to the point where she wasn't able to survive. Losing her made me realize that I just never wanted to never wanted to forget her. By starting the foundation was a way for me to remember her every day. When we meet these families and and help out these
0: kids, it definitely is a great reward to think that, you know, in, in her name and in her
2: honor we're able to help these families. So really she lives on. Though she lived just a short two years, Jamie's legacy continues to make a difference in the lives of children and families affected by congenital heart disease. By providing financial assistance, support, and hope, her foundation allows families to focus on what's most important.
1: Life doesn't stop the bills continue to come in, whether they're medical bills or whether they're electric bills or uh, childcare bills, whatever it might be, but we try to find a way that we can relieve some level of stress on their lives as they're really dealing with a very stressful situation with their child who has a congenital heart defect.
2: Suddenly they have this burden lifted off their shoulders. There's going to be somebody there to help us understand the complications with the heart defect, and there's going to be somebody there to help us if we have financial problems.
1: Families need a
2: lot of support, not just economically, however, but also from an emotional standpoint. And Jamie's Heart Foundation is an organization that sort of fills in the gaps.
1: We were emotional wrecks. We were trying to hold it together the best we could, but we had to lean on family and friends a lot for support.
0: There's no way that we could have gone through what we did without the support that we had.
1: We had family, we had friends that were constantly able to come up and visit. It's one of the things that I identified, you know, and even part of why we created the foundation was I think we weren't necessarily the norm. It means the world. It's far more than a rental car or the few hundred dollars that it takes to get a rental car. It means that we can focus on Peyton when he's in the hospital. It's always about a very deep relationship with the family so they know that we're here night and day to help them out when they need it.
2: It's coming in and helping when someone needs
1: help, but they also plant the seed of inspiration and that family will help someone
0: else in the future. They allow families to to focus
1: on their kids. Their mind needs to be focused on being there at their kid's side instead of on a bill that needs to be paid. And if we can do something to, to change that, to provide that level of relief, then that's why we did it.
0: And then would you welcome up Tim Hanna to the stage? Tim, come join me up here for a minute. It's good to see you this morning, man. Thanks for coming. I know this is never an easy topic for you. Um, and I appreciate so much you being here. Um, rather than focusing on, you know, this Jamie's story and everything that, that she went through, I wanted to ask you this morning about that moment, that place when you had lost your child. And in my mind, one of the things I've always been so proud about you is that, first of all, that you guys went through your process separately. You gave each other space and room, because I know your grieving was different than Karina's, and your journey back to a fruitful faith was... Different timing and different, and uh, and I don't know, you probably know the statistics, but my guess is, what, some 60%, 70% of couples don't make it, right, after, after the loss of a child. And you guys are thriving. You've had more kids. Your family's thriving. You're this incredible fruit that is born out of a place where you could have been stuck. So talk to me about that place where you had lost your child, you had a choice to be stuck or not, and God brought you to a place of faith and fruit.
1: Thank you. I think it's on. Here we go. Were you there? Yeah. All right. Uh, first of all, thank you for allowing me to be here. It's, uh, it's always an honor to uh, spend a little bit of time talking about Jamie or seeing her, although it's uh, not always easy. But um, I kind of have to go back to uh, time in the hospital when that vision of providing help for other families kind of was birthed. Um, it was actually her first surgery, and I remember we were in a room next to another child who had parents who couldn't be together during this time. One of them had to work, and they would have a switch. You know, 6 o'clock in the evening, they would switch, and they would kind of say, how's things going, Say, so give me a little kiss, and off they went. And it really grieved me uh, because I thought, man, that's just not right. I mean, that's really what I thought was, How can you do that? How can you do that as a couple? Because for my wife and I, we were fortunate to be able to be there, to be by Jamie's side the entire time, to help each other through that. Um, So I feel real real blessed by that. And so when I realized that that was not the norm, in my my heart and in my mind, I felt like there's got to be something we can do. Now, of course, in the midst of all this stuff and surgeries, you know, boy, I didn't have the time or the energy to do something. But when Jamie passed away, obviously... um, you know, you have that emotional just bomb that just blows up in your heart. And uh, and, I, and I remember, I was telling Wayne this, that I remember we were in Hawaii when she passed away. Um, and the next day, she passed away just before midnight on New Year's Eve. And uh, we, were, we were flying out the next day, and we were waiting in Maui. And you're thinking, you know, and it was a tough day. Obviously, we just wanted to get home. And I remember going through the security lines, and of course, you know, TSA is, hopefully there's no TSA employees here, but it's miserable to go through, right? And so uh, I remember getting there, and I had an empty car seat. My daughter was two, and we had an empty car seat that we needed to be on the plane, and I was going to check it in. Well, obviously, my daughter was no longer with us, and I remember it it set off alarms. So here comes a bunch of supervisors, and, oh, well, you can't go any further. We got to do this and that, and I remember I was mad. I was just furious. I was like, "Are you kidding me? Throw the darn thing away. You know, I just lost my kid. I don't want to stand here and let you swab this thing and and take this thing apart and rip it out of a bag and put it back in. I'm like, just throw the thing away. I was just I was really mad. So then I go from that line to the next line where we had forgotten one of Jamie's medications was liquid. It was so big and it had and we had water with it. And the TS agent said, "Sir, you can't take that much liquid through this security checkpoint. You're going to have to go dump it out and come back around, wait in line for another half hour or so, while the rest of my family went on." And I looked at him and I said, "Are you kidding me? I just lost my kid, and you're going to make me go all the way around? I need to be here with my family." And the guy was just stoic and just said, "You know, sorry, that's the way, that's the rules." And I was, in, and I'm in public safety, so I have a lot of grace for that, right? And uh, I was just furious. I was just mad. I was at the point where I was like, I'm not a Christian right now. (laughs) Uh, And I felt that way. Um, You know, it wasn't until I got back in to the terminal and I I had talked to my mom. and And I sat there in the airport. And I remembered that moment back in the hospital where I said, you know what? Jamie's death doesn't have to be this devastating to me personally. And I thought, you know what? That vision I had years ago of helping other families—I was like, you know what, Jamie's Heart Foundation, that's going to be it. Now, it didn't—I didn't just start the foundation the next day, but that was the moment where I had to make a choice. In my—in my heart, I felt like I'm making a choice: do I make something good, or do I just sit back and say, you know what, look around me—I should be be pitied upon by others—and uh, look at this great tragedy. Why me? Why us? And I realized, well, there's, there's something better out of this. And and that's how I kind of went from that. I mean, it was I, I can remember that moment. Yeah. And that's where I, I think it was, a, it was a choice of mine to say, I'm not going to let it kill me. Yeah.
0: Absolutely amazing to me. I was always so proud of you. I mean, I felt like it was just amazing to watch. It was amazing to watch God rise out of the ashes, that beautiful thing in you. Um, for those who don't know the story, actually... Jamie had gotten better. The surgery seemed like a success. And um, after plenty of time for healing and health and the doctors cleared, um, the family took a much-needed respite to Hawaii to recover from all of it. And it was on the beaches in Hawaii when Jamie's heart finally decided they had enough. And so that was really tough because you thought you'd gotten over the hump, right? And then, um, So Karina, it took a little longer for her. And one of the other things, like I said, I was amazed at is that you guys gave each other that space to get through it on your own. Um, she's not here, I don't want to speak for her, but can you just kind of summarize for her sort of the grieving that a mother went through and then she made a choice. I mean, I watch her today. Her life is incredible. It's fruitful. It's alive. It's impacting other lives. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, it, it was very different. For me, it was I'm going to do this tangible thing in me that is a healing process for me to be able to remember my daughter. And, and it was and I don't know if it's because I'm a guy or if it's whatever it is, but for me it was, I'm going to go do this. And that was a, a, a kind of the healing process for me is, is something that well, I can remember my daughter, and I see her face every day, and I do these things um, to help other families. And obviously every time I help a family or we deal with a family, I'm always thinking of Jamie, and that, that, that keeps that heart whole in me, I think. For my wife, though, it was much different. It was... Um, we were very fortunate. We were in transition, moving over to Spokane, so we were actually living with her mom uh, at their house in their in their basement while we were building our house. And um, it was nice for her to be there because uh, her mom had lost a child. Karina had had a, a younger sister that was twins that had lost they had lost uh, due to Sid's death. So there was some raw emotional, uh, just raw emotions there with her mom as well, and being there with us in Hawaii. And um, so for Karina, it was you know coming home and seeing her just lying in bed, curled up, and just sobbing. And uh, and I knew that there was nothing I could do besides just being there and just saying I'm here. And just, there was nothing I could say to fix it. There was nothing I could do that would say, okay, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and magically she's going to be healed. Um, all I could do was pray and and just let her know that I was here. And I, remember, I, I do remember one time we were actually driving home from the hospital the night that Jamie passed, and we were in the back seat of the car, and she looked. She made this comment. She goes, "We're going to get through this, right?" And I said, "Absolutely, we will." Um, and that was a time where we knew we're going to have that grace for each other to get through this. It's not going to look the same, but it's going to it's, it's going to be there. We're going to have that grace to get through it. So she did. You know, the foundation was not something that she she didn't. She wasn't that. She wasn't supportive of it. She knew that was my avenue of healing, and so. That, but it took her a while to really j- jump on and, and be part of this. And even even today, and, and Wayne and I talked about it. It's our, we have some kids that are sick at home, but um, even something like this is sometimes still hard for my wife, because it, it draws on that emotions. And um, it's not that she doesn't love doing stuff with the foundation. nation. I know that things that I do. Uh, like being at the hospital, being in an intensive care unit with a family, and being at, a, at the side of a child who is you know, minutes away from death um, is something that I can do because I know I'm there to help with his family. But for my wife, that would be devastating. So I know not to try to force her into those situations. And, that, and that's been a process for the seven years. But early on, that was specifically something not to try to push those things on her, um, give ourselves grace, on both sides you know she knows i had something to do i knew that she had to work through the process and we just had that grace for each other
0: well Well, thanks man i appreciate so much you sharing um again i'm so proud that it was amazing to watch somebody who i thought had every right to be stuck and every right to be angry with the lord and every right to wallow in that moment Um, to watch you turn that into a faith that is profitable and not barren. It's been an amazing journey, and I appreciate you sharing it with us today, brother. Thank you so much. Adam, so Adam and the worship team, you guys can come on up. Um, so that's obviously a huge deal, the loss of a child, right? Um, but huge deals happen, right? Cancer happens. Miscarriages happen. Life happens. And I don't know what it is for you this morning, but I know this. If you close your eyes with me and ask the Holy Spirit to help us examine where we're at. What season in our faith are we in right now? I'm not asking you if you love the Lord. But I will say this before we go any further. If you've not been connected to the source, if you don't have roots, if you're hearing about Jesus for the first time, or you've never actually made that initial commitment of faith that Paul talks about, that we are justified by grace alone through faith, and this morning you want to meet the Lord for the first time, will you just quickly raise your hand? If I can connect with you. If you want to ask Jesus in your life for the first time. I do. Then I want to ask you this as we're examining. What season am I in, Lord? I've loved you. I come to church. But is this a profitable season for me? Or am I stuck? You might not even know why you're stuck. Maybe you've just been busy and getting stuck just sort of came upon you, creeped up behind you. And you and it's a little barren and there's no fruit, the hard thing is that's usually the last time we want to talk to somebody about it. That's the last time we want to raise our hand and say, this is where I'm at right now. But it's when we need to do it. Because it's potentially fatal, and the next step and we certainly don't ever want to get there. So I'm just going to ask you as the worship team sings a song, that if you want prayer, come on up. Nobody's judging this morning. We're not saying you don't love the Lord saying that you realize you're in a season where you want a little extra help. In fact, Tim, if you're feeling up to it, I'd like you to come up and pray with Pastor Dan, too. We come up,
2: And we're just going to sing the song, and I'm going to invite you to do so. Come on up.